Listen now to the word of the Lord. Um, we are in the Psalms this spring in our series. It is a series that we uh, call the lyrics of knowing God. And we've looked at several Psalms and now we're in Psalm 8 in its entirety. Hear the word now of the Lord. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. This psalm is a psalm of David, no doubt. It was a psalm that was probably composed by David fairly early in his career. Perhaps even the germ of this particular psalm started when he was just a shepherd boy. Because it says in the psalms that he sees and ponders the creation. There in the night sky, as he kept watch over his father's flocks, he would study the heavens. And as we saw last week, the creation, the created order, is the first piece of evidence of the existence of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. If you say that there is no God and you don't take a look at creation, you have disallowed the first piece of evidence, the major piece of evidence the very existence of all of the universe and everything that we know about it, and so much of it is still mysterious and beyond us. The immensity of the heavens, the whole expanse of God's creation is the evidence that there is someone who is powerful, who is mighty, who is intelligent, and who is purposeful, who has placed these things. And it's interesting the way David expresses that particular awe when he thinks of the creation. He says he beholds the moon and the stars. What about the sun? He didn't mention the sun. I think there's a reason for that. I think he was observing at night and he saw the stars. Did you know that you don't see the stars very easily <laughs> during the daytime? The nearest star, the most prominent star, the star that is closest to us, the sun itself, we being in the solar system, we are overwhelmed by the brightness of the sun when it is on our side of the planet. And we don't see the stars. Most of the time we don't see the moon. Occasionally you can see the moon, but it fades into the azure blue of the skies. And that's the way I think a lot of things are in our life. That which is closest to us tends to take up all of our sight and we can't see beyond it. The sun shines so bright during the day that we're not able to see the stars. But then some nighttime comes. 
times and we have a different perspective. Our eyes are opened. We can see the stars. Isn't that the way it is in our life so often? That which is right in front of us, that which is immediate, that which is demanding, that which is imminent, that which is before our face and demands our attention, urgent and important things take our attention. And we don't have any capacity, no eyes to see way beyond that. But when some darkness comes into our lives, when we have something there that is a shadow, it may be the shadow of death, divorce, debt, doubt, depression. When some darkness comes, then our eyes can be opened. In those hours of need, we can see beyond. And we can see the stars and the magnificent. We can see there's a whole lot more out there than we ever thought. And I think that's what happens to so many of us in our lives. That which is in our face and in front of us all the time tends to cloud us and to obscure and truncate our reason so that we cannot see that which is beyond. It's interesting that the carnal eye doesn't see God anywhere. The spiritual eye, the eye of faith, sees God everywhere. And I think that's the way David was here in this particular psalm. It was the experience of the darkness that opened his eyes to the magnificent of the Lord. And he said, Lord, that means the one who has dominion, the creator, the one who is all powerful and all knowing and all wise. Our Lord, we have an interest in him. He belongs to us. He says, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The name of God is more than just his proper name. It is his entire character. And I, without apology, will tell you that David here is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. The name that is above every name, the majesty and the glory of the Almighty God, the Creator God, is revealed in the face of the man, Jesus Christ. In fact, that's what Jesus said his whole ministry was about when he came to earth in his incarnation. Jesus said he came to glorify the Father, to make his name known in all the earth. And that's what the psalmist is recognizing. This is a psalm, without a doubt, about Christ. Now, I've mentioned several times when we've touched on the psalms over the years that anytime you read a psalm, look for three people in the psalm because they're there. Every psalm has three people in it. Look for David or the psalmist. A few of them are written by Moses and Asaph and maybe Solomon. There were a few other psalmists, but David was the, per, the predominant author of the psalms. Look for David. Think about David's experience. Think about what David went through. David is a very real person in ancient Israel's history, but he was also a symbol, a type of so many wonderful things, and especially things that are fulfilled in the life and person and ministry of Jesus Christ when he came in his fullness 
in time. So look for David. See what you can learn about that man. About his emotions, about his insights, his feelings, his frustrations. The Psalms are very emotional. There's a lot of exclamation in the Psalm. There's a lot of anger in the Psalms. There's a lot of despair in the Psalms. There's jubilation in the Psalm. There's insight and so forth. Look for David and look for Christ. You'll find Christ in the Psalm. Every single Psalm has Christ in it somewhere and usually more than one place. He's there. He's there in shadow. He's there in type. He's there in predictive prophecy. But He's there. He's here several places in this psalm. First one we just mentioned. How majestic is thy name in all the earth. Who brings the glory of God to the creation and proclaims God and pictures God and manifests God more than Jesus Christ. And then the third, David, Christ, look for yourself. You're there. You're there. You may be just about like David. There may be a lot of things in David's personal and emotional experience that that will say something to you. You're in this psalm. I'm in this psalm. We're here. But listen to the... uh, uh, Let me explain a few things about it because I just... I have to kind of explain things about the psalms and about the scriptures so they really understand them. said, you've set your glory above the heavens... Oh, that's Christ right there. The glory of God, Jesus Christ, has been set above the heavens. That's what the enthronement of Christ is all about. And we'll speak just in, in a moment about more about that enthronement being placed upon the throne of heavens. It's not just in the heavens, it's above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. What in the world does that mean? Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have established your strength because of your foes to to steal the enemy and the avenger. What does that mean? What does that mean, Dr. Russell? Well, I've read a few commentaries and there's a lot of different understandings of what it means. But the easiest way to understand this, I think, is to use that principle of interpretation that I use all the time. You compare Scripture with Scripture. And when in doubt, look at the New Testament and see what the apostles thought it meant. See what Christ meant. This is quoted by Jesus. And it's quoted on an occasion. And the occasion was when Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple. And Matthew's account has an interesting little factoid. It is this, that when Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple, showing his righteous indignation that they had turned the house of prayer, the place to worship God, into a commercial operation and a fraudulent one at that. In Matthew's account, it says that little children started saying something. And what they were saying were, Hosanna, to the son of David. And the money changers who were very angry, the text says they were very angry, they were upset, they were in a mood of retaliation and enmity and hostility to Jesus. These little children were crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. 
And Jesus looked at these people and said, out of the mouths of babes. And here is exactly what it happens is you have established strength because of your foes to still, and the word still means to silence, to silence the enemy and the avenger. Oh, we'd have to develop it a little bit, but I think you're, you can catch on. It is that which is simple. It is that which is innocent. Except you become like a little child, Jesus said, you cannot enter the kingdom. And it's the babes and the infants. It's the little children, Jesus said, come unto me. He said, suffer those children to let those children come to me. For of such is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God appears to be weak. It appears to be small. It, it is in total need of being cared for. The people of the kingdom of God are babes and infants. And yet that's the strength of God. That's the power of God because in our weakness, His strength is made known. And what does He do? He silences the avengers. He silences the skeptics and the opponents and those that are called the enemies, the blasphemers. In other words, God Himself, by manifesting His strength within His weak flock, shuts the mouths of those that gainsay, that oppose, that are at enmity against God. He fights our battles. He gives us strength when there is none. He pulls us through when we need desperately to be pulled through. And that glory was given to Him there in the temple that day by those little children with their chant in the midst of that, what seemed to be a very disruptive and violent situation. It's interesting here in verse 3, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, and we've already referenced that with respect to the moon and the stars and night, but it says the work of your fingers. If you study the imagery carefully in Scripture, whenever the Bible wants to talk about God's might, it talks about His mighty arm. God's right hand, in fact, is his mighty arm. With it, he can push, he can pull, he can pound. It's a mighty arm. It's an effective arm. It's an arm of strength. It's an arm of victory. But this is the work of the fingers. This is intricacy. This is delicacy. This is not the Lord tearing down the strongholds of the enemy. This is the Lord taking tapestry and embroidery and putting it together. And I'm telling you right now as a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ that if He can create the stars in the heavens with His fingers, He can put your life back together. He can do a work in your soul. He can knit you back and make you whole. And that's what the psalmist stands in awe is the awesome power of God to do that work. But then the next verse is interesting too. It's just full of good verses here. This is an incredible lyric. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? That's a parallelism. And, you, and usually in Hebrew parallelism, when one sentence says something, the other sentence comes back and says pretty much the same thing, but may use different words. And that's exactly what happens here. But by using different words... It's not really saying the same thing. There's an embellishment. There's an enrichment. 
There is an addition to what's being said. And this is a beautiful couplet here. What is man? When I see the stars, the magnificence of your heavens, what are the... What, what is man? What is the humanoid? What's this little creature? What's this clod of clay before that? And that's what that word means. The word is translated man. There's the word enosh or enosh, which means man in his weakness, humanity and frailty, humanity and misery. Literally, the root word is misery. <laughs> oh, he's pretty well got it, doesn't he? Oh, David didn't think this up on his own. He had been reading Job. And Job, by the way, is a more ancient text than the psalm. And remember Job in his despair when he says, I complain of the bitterness of my soul. He says, what is man that you make so much of him? Why do you magnify him that you set your heart on him? You visit him every morning and test him every moment. What is our existence but a series of visitations from the Lord? And we'll see the word visit in just a minute. But testing one test after another. Seems like we're always having some kind of examination, some kind of testing, some kind of trial that comes our way. Where's the Lord in all of this? Seems like the Lord is not paying attention. The Lord has forgotten about us. We're down here in all of this. And he says, what is man in his weakness that you are mindful of him, that you remember him? God remembers us. You remember back in the ancient day when God's people were in misery and in slavery in Egypt. You remember the, the text said, the Lord remembered. <laughs> well, you know, he has a good memory, but it had been a while. They'd gone down into Egypt, 70 of them, 70 souls had gone to Egypt, the family of Jacob. And now they were multiplied to some estimate, maybe up to near a million people. The midwives of Israel had done a good job over the generations, and now they were a huge tribe. And the Lord had not forgotten them. He had not only forgotten, not forgotten them, He had not forgotten their great-grandfather, Abraham. And for the sake of His covenant, He acted. And that's exactly what it's saying here. And the Son of Man that you care for Him. The word that Son of Man here is Ben Adam, Son of Adam human son of man that you visit him is what it says uh, in 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 a really act in a really precise translation and and the visitation of the lord means this in the old testament and all through the bible when god visits his people he visits them in a couple of ways he visits them to punish them to chasten them to correct them god's visitation often is a visitation that it has negative consequences. God is not happy with His people. God comes in wrath to His people. But also the word visitation is often applied to God coming in mercy. God coming in tenderness. God coming to redeem, God coming to ransom and to care for. And that's what this here, it's, it, it really is a word that's like visitation. Uh, it, it's the word pastoral. We talk of pastoral visitation. That's a redundancy because a visitation is pastoral. The pastor comes to strengthen and to encourage and to bring gospel and healing and balm. Sometimes the pastor comes to rebuke and admonish and correct. And that's the way the Lord comes. And that's exactly the way He's come to us. He's come to us 
in a person. The Lord God Almighty, the Father, has come to us in a son. And that son comes visiting us. Visiting us. Visiting us with correction, chastening, discipline, sometimes scourging, severe discipline. But he doesn't leave us. He visits us in mercy. He comes to us in Christ, bringing salvation, the free offer, the proffer of the gospel that says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The invitation so tender saying, come unto me all you that labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. God comes to us. He visits us in Christ. You say, Ron, I think you're stretching it a little. Well, we got to read the next phrase because there it is. If we get right down to it, he says, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. I found Christ in the first verse. I found him when he says, You've set your glory. Majestic is your name. I found Christ referring to the incident in in verse 2 where out of the mouth of babes you've established your strength. I find Christ in the creation. He created all things by His powerful Word, the Bible tells us. But here is Christ unmistakably because a half dozen times in the New Testament, the writers, principally the Apostle Paul in his letters, use this particular scripture to refer directly to Christ. And the book of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, quotes it directly as referring to Christ. And this is what it is. So you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Or it's not just geography, it's not just space, it's also time. You've made him for a little while. There's a time element. For a little while, you've made him lower than the angels. That's what what Christ did in his humiliation. He came to us, God in the flesh, a little lower than the angels. And I don't know of a better summary anywhere than Ten questions and answers out of our confession of faith, the larger catechism. And I'm not going to read it all, but let me just summarize it. It says, what was the estate of Christ's humiliation? The estate of Christ's humiliation was that low condition wherein for our sakes, emptying himself of his glory, took upon himself the form of a servant in his conception A very human conception. It was a conception of a woman. But it was a very divine conception. God, the Spirit, superintended upon 
that conception. Mysterious, sure, but it brings us a unique person, God and man in one person. At His conception, His birth, a very lowly birth, in His life, a very humble and miserable life, in His death, How much more humiliating can you get than to be hung upon a cross naked and shredded and mocked and scourged and abandoned? And after His death until the rest, how did Christ humble Himself in His conception and birth? He humbled Himself at His conception and birth in that being from all eternity the Son of God in the bosom of the Father, He was pleased in the fullness of time to become the Son of Man. Just what your text said. The Son of Man. Made of a woman of low estate. And to be born to her with various circumstances of more than ordinary deprivation. You study the life of Christ. He did not live like a king. He suffered. He was under the human condition. He was Enosh. He was man in his misery. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He walked where we walked. The deepest valley we go through, He walked through it. He suffered. How did Christ humble Himself in this life? He humbled Himself in this life subjecting Himself to the law. Perfectly fulfilling it and by enduring the indignities of the world. Oh, He did that. The temptations of Satan. The infirmities in his flesh, whether common to the nature of man or particularly accompanying his low condition, Christ humbled himself in his death, in that having been betrayed by Judas, forsaken by his disciples, scorned and rejected by the world, condemned by Pilate and tormented by his persecutors, and having also conflicted with the terrors of death and the powers of darkness, having felt and borne the weight of God's wrath. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He was accepting that visitation from God that is punishment, wrath, cursing, destruction. He was receiving that in His body as He suffered upon the cross. He laid down His life an offering for sin, enduring the painful, shameful, and cursed death of the cross. That ought to be enough. But He's not low enough. He's not lower than the angels yet. Christ's humiliation after His death consisted in His being buried and continuing in the state of death under the power of death until the third day. Which has otherwise been expressed in these words, and I'm glad our confession helps us at this point. He descended into hell. The Apostles' Creed, the oldest and most widely used creed in the Christian faith, says He descended into hell. Whatever hell is, it's another sermon. It's a good sermon, but it's another sermon. Whatever hell is, He bore it so you wouldn't have to. That's lower than the angels. What was the estate of Christ's exaltation? The second half of that verse says, You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor and giving him dominion. And it, and it mentions in verses 6 and 7, the whole creation, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the whole creation. Read Genesis 1 and 2 and you've got the picture. 
Here Christ is in the image of God, the express likeness of the Father, the Bible says, coming to find mankind, human beings who were created in the image of God, but that image had become scarred and marred by sin and rebellion. And Jesus comes to restore that image, to take that image that God had created in the very first place and restore it to its rightful place of dominion that God had given Adam. And now Ben Adam, the son of Adam, the son of man, has come to restore all that. And that's what the exaltation is all about. Peter, in his sermon in Pentecost, when he preaches, he, he mentions the crowning of glory and honor being set upon a throne. And I promised you I'd get there, and I'm there, and I'm about done. It's enthronement. He's been set upon a throne. He's been given a dominion over all of creation, over all the stars and over all the people and everything you can imagine. What is the estate of Christ's exaltation? The estate of Christ's exaltation is made up of his resurrection, his ascension, his sitting at the right hand of the Father and coming again to judge the world. I need to stop, but can I read just one more question and answer? please. I need a nod of the heads. Okay. This is question 52 and the answer. I might have misled you. It's kind of long. How was Christ exalted in his resurrection? Christ was exalted in his resurrection in that not having seen decay in death in which it was not possible for him to be held and having the very same body in which he suffered with his essential properties but without mortality and other common infirmities belonging to his life really united to his soul he rose again from the dead the third day by his own power whereby he declared himself to be the son of God to have satisfied divine justice to have vanquished death and him who had the power of it, and to be the Lord of the living and the dead. All this he did as a representative person. He was representing somebody. He was standing in their place and in their room and in their stead. He was in your place as he rose from the dead. All this he did as a representative person, the head of the church for their justification, making them alive in grace, supporting them against enemies, and assuring them of their resurrection from the dead at the last day. The resurrection, which we're in the fifth Sunday of Easter today, on our way to celebrate Pentecost pretty soon, the resurrection, the ascension of Christ, the enthronement of Christ, the ruling and the reigning of Christ over all the earth. And then one day the triumphant victorious return of Christ. The same Jesus that they saw ascend into heaven will come in like manner and he will come to collect, to gather. That's what the word church means. You know, it means literally it means a gathering. A gathering. It's not the building. It's not even the organization. It's those that have been called out for a purpose. It's really a civil term. It's a military term to gather his own to be with him. Having restored every one of us, each and every one of us, to our rightful place as an image bearer of God.